when it's time to re-roll the characters. When Batman checks the challenge ratings. When the 300 mile long snake wears Parada. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Lennon. And I'm Astra. And this is the 139th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, October 24th, and released Wednesday, October 28th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ostron, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventures Pack, Lennon re-rolls his characters. Next, we check out some D&D news as we uncover the lid off the coffin in Curse of Strahd Revamped, issue 34 of Dragon Plus, and why I drank several pints of Pepto-Bismol after reading the rules updates to sidekicks coming with Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And after that, we take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to find out what it takes to rule in hell, before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you have to say. And that takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurer's packs. You always carry this machine bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need this stupid rule for! So this week for the Adventurous Pack, as Ostron said, I am re-rolling my characters. Yeah, occasionally I do find tools to talk about that aren't maps. Uh, this one is one that I actually backed on Kickstarter when it was on there a little while ago and helped get it through the alpha and beta. The app uh, that I'm going to be talking about today is Reroll, and it is available at reroll.co. So reroll.co. Reroll, at its heart, is a character art slash character sheet creator. It's available for web, Android, and iOS, and it allows you to create characters in a really nice pixel art style. This was the reason that I actually backed it on Kickstarter. Originally, the character sheet was kind of like a bit of an aside, but the app has since developed and has gone on to add more and more features that the character sheet side of it is actually really robust and can be used at your table as well. Reroll comes in two different tiers. You have the starter tier, which will grant you five character slots, access to all 16 races, but a limited selection of armor, weapons, and bases for your character to stand on. The standard tier, which costs $10, or if you know somebody who's already got a subscription, they can get you a key for $7, that gives you access to unlimited character slots, all 16 races, over 20 pets, over 150 weapons, over 300 pieces of armor, and over 15 bases for your character to stand on. The races, I mentioned there are 16 of them that you get access to on both tiers. These are um, Human, Elf, Half-Elf, Half-Orc, Gnome, Halfling, Tiefling, Dragonborn, Dwarf, Catfolk, Ascended, Goliath, Elementals, Living Construct, Furbog, and Goblin. Now, there's two in there that you might spot have somewhat unusual names for, for races in D&D. These are Ascended and Living Construct. Now, the reason for that is when Reroll came out, they wanted to incorporate everything Dungeons & Dragon-y into it. So they used to have parts where on the character sheet you could add your spells to be tracked with uh, cantrips and first level through all the way to ninth. And they had all the races that you could find in any published production. And then the BDI of Wizards of the Coast wandered over them and said, 
don't think half of that is in the SRD and you guys certainly don't have a license and they went, oh, our bad and stripped a lot of stuff back. So living construct as an example would be a really good thing if you wanted to create some art for, I don't know, a warforged. Ascended would also be good if you wanted to go for the more ASMR style. Just saying. So once you head over to reroll.co and you get started with the demo, that's the starter tier, which is completely free. You get greeted by a website, or if you're doing it on the mobile app, it functions the same, where you basically just have to begin with a big plus button. You click the plus button and then you get three options. Do you want character art only, which does not have a character sheet, a blank character sheet for the one that you can then fill in all the details, or guided creation, which as the name implies, will allow you to step through making a character, choosing your backgrounds, your uh, racial features, etc., etc. And it also has a thing on there to do a custom data import. So if you've already created a character, you can actually export the character and then you can re-import it if you want to tweak it and stuff like that. The three different options that you have on here about the character art only, the blank character sheet, and the guided creation. As I said, the app first started out as a character art creator with a bit of a mini character sheet, and then they added more and more and more and more features to the point where a lot of people started saying, well, I only wanted this for the art, I never wanted the character sheet. And so they've done a lot of ways to separate it out so you can just get the art if that's what you want, or you can get the sheet if that's what you want. Now, personally for me, this is where I would actually say it's a bit of a con because this app has been in active development for a little while. They have added more and more and more features. But as a result, when stuff gets added, a lot of things then get difficult to find. And I'll come onto this in a bit once we've actually created a character and I talk you through a few more of the features. Um, so to begin with, I'm just gonna choose character art only. The first option that I get is to choose my racial body type. So these are all the races that I listed earlier. So let's just pick half elf, why not? Uh, you then get a choice of uh, whether you choose a masculine or a feminine form. So you can select accordingly. They are uh, basically for choosing dimorphism. Um, once you've done that, you then get to choose your skin color and your body type. Now. The way that they do colouring on this is interesting because to begin with, they actually do it through hue, saturation and brightness, which not a lot of people generally work with when it comes to colour. They're more used to choosing tint and adjusting the, the levels from there. So if you were expecting a colour wheel off the bat to be able to choose your skin colour, you won't be able to do that. You'll need to switch it into tint mode before you then start adding various tints in. But this has to work in conjunction with the hue and the saturation. So if you're not somebody who's up on how to use graphical editing programs and don't really know what these terms are, it will be fiddly as heck trying to get the exact coloring that you're after. Nevertheless, it is just a case of adjusting sliders. So give it a few minutes and you'll probably be able to get it close to what you're after. After that, you then get to pick what type of uh, face you like and your hairstyle. It's very similar to if you've ever created a character in an MMO or even games like Baldur's Gate, you know, you get choice of hair one, hair two, hair three, hair four, so on and so forth, get to colour it as you go. Once you've then created a base body type, you simply give your character a name and any additional info that you want, like a short write-up or anything like that. Then you get presented on a screen where you basically have a character in their underwear. And after that, the next step is to click on inventory and to start adding in the layers. So a couple of the inventory slots are like dual layered. So for example, the facial slot has an A layer and a B layer. And this is because you might want a hat, but also a scarf. And both of those go in the facial area. Uh, same with the back, you might want a cloak and a backpack. 
To equip items to your character to get the visual look, it is just a case of literally clicking on, say, the armor slot, and then scrolling through the hundred and however many plus different combinations of armor that you want. You, once you've clicked on an individual piece of armor, you then also get the option to color it and shift it using the hue and the tint uh, exactly the same as you could for your hairstyles. Once you've then gone through and built up, so you've put on chest piece, some, some trousers, some boots, maybe a cloak, you can add weapons, you can add a pet if you're playing some sort of Ranger Beastmaster or if you just want an animal companion on there. And the pets that they've got, there's quite a wide range. Everything from the ones that you would expect, like a, a panther or a, a wolf, all the way through to owlbears, but they also have uh, will-o'-the-wisps, they have rabbits, they have sugar gliders, they have pugs. Don't know why you'd pick that, but they have them. And if you want to create a character based on the Queen of England, they also have corgis. So you can tweak those to your heart's content. Once you've done that, you then get the option of what kind of base you want your character to stand on. Your character doesn't have to stand on a base, but if you choose to have them stand on a base, then it kind of looks like a tabletop mini in that it's got just a circular plinth with a little bit of detail on it. I say a little bit of detail, some of them actually go into some quite decent levels of detail. In fact, there's a couple of them are even animated if you have what's called the standard tier, and these just add like a little bit of extra fanciness to it as well. But there's bases that have uh, dungeon tile, there's grass, there's snow, there's trees both in summer and in autumn, a massive sort of stargate type thing as well. There's all sorts of different bases that you can choose. Once you've built up your character though, you then have the option of exporting it. And you can export your character as either what they call a character card, which comes on a PNG with a bit of a border around it, designed to be printed and used as a name plaque type thing. Or you can just export it straight as a PNG, in which case you have a transparent background, your character is stood alone. This can then be used to put into your own digital character sheets, you could use it as avatars on Twitter, you know, however you want to use your characters at that point, you can. When I was saying earlier that as they added more and more features though it gets a little bit complex to find where things are. As an example, once you've created a character, if you think actually I want to go in and change the hairstyle, it's not immediately necessarily obvious that what you've got to do is go into the character, pop out the side menu, then hit edit body and face to get that up. Even if you did manage to find that because that is relatively straightforward, what you may not then realise is that, you know, if you want to do something like completely reorder the layers that the armor appears on because you might have a dagger that's now got lost underneath your character's cloak as an example the way that you actually get to that is not by going through your inventory and trying to drag things around nor by going to edit character but by actually clicking the character popping out the side menu going to options and then going to layers and visibility like i said not the most intuitive place to find that sort of stuff if you haven't followed the app through with development however Having said that, a bit like everything else, once you know where it is, it's relatively easy to find. In the options menu though, the one where I said you pop out the side menu, you also get the option to convert from, say, character art only to a character sheet, or from a character sheet back to character art only. Once you convert it, it does give you a warning that it's irreversible. I don't know why they say that, because it's completely not. You just literally go in, flick it back the other way. Once you convert it from, say, character art to character sheet, or if you create with a character sheet, then you'll notice that on your character you now have lots of different options 
to be able to add your armor class, your hit points, your hit dice, all your individual saves. It'll calculate your proficiency. It does all the automated cheat stuff that you would expect. It also has a combat tracker of sorts where you can add and remove hit points as you're being attacked and keep track of everything that way. A section for your spells as well, including uh, your save DC. You can add your cantrips and your slots and then as you cast spells, you can mark them off. Personally, I don't really use this because I often play games with D&D Beyond, so I tend to use those tools, but I have known people who have used this at the table and it has been absolutely fine. You know, it's it's a digital character sheet at the end of the day. There's a million of them out there. This one very nicely presented when it's on mobile and overall is a, a pretty nice tool to have at the table if you don't have access to something like D&D Beyond. Yeah, so basically other than having some of the menu items a little bit difficult to find, particularly if you've not evolved alongside the app, uh, this app is pretty straightforward. It's effectively the fantasy equivalent of a doll maker. So if you've ever tried to create characters using those uh, doll makers that you find online, this is just another version. Pixel art style is quite nice. Pixel art style. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's reroll. And I sent this to my co-hosts earlier on this evening, admittedly only about an hour before the show, so I don't know how much they've had a chance to play around with it. That one genuinely is my fault. Sorry, guys. But yeah, what did you guys think when uh, I gave this to you? Have you had a chance to play around with it? What are your thoughts? I actually thought it was really odd when, you know how you said at the beginning when you first create the character and it puts them in their underpants? Um, mm -hmm. I went to go create a cat folk and neither male nor female were in their underpants and I thought that that was very awkward <laughs> another thing on that too when I got to actually customizing this cat folk character the change skin color did not change the tail and that really threw me off because the tail is a separate thing that you get to walk through <laughs> Yes, yeah, uh, tail is like uh, changing the skin color won't change your beard color if you're a human yeah. or a dwarf or whatever. Yeah, tail is listed as a separate one. And it was the same for the dragonborn as well. Right, which makes sense. I didn't quite get to the character sheet part of it, though I did fill out the stats, but I'm... I'm quite saddened that the range of customization you can do for the free version is extremely limited. Yeah, I mean, it is free. Yeah. And this app, like I said, it is only $10, which isn't that much, or $7 if you know someone who's already got it, so just let me know if you want me to buy you a key. But... <laughs> Yeah, it's really not that much to uh, get. And when you have unlocked the full thing, like I said, you get all the pets, you get all the weapons, you get all the armors, all the bases, yeah. absolutely everything. And it's a one-time purchase as well. Well, that's great. I was just disappointed at how little you got with the free version. I understand it, but I was still disappointed. Right, sure. Yeah, this app, a lot of the design decisions confused me. Are we talking about the app or the, like, as in the, the structure of the app? Well, the, I mean, okay, I accessed it on PC, so I wasn't using the phone app. But sure. Like you already pointed out, the hue, saturation, tint selection for the colors and 
the organization of the items that are available for free is confusing to me. Because, for example, I understand limiting the options, but, for example, you can't really make some of the more traditional classes just with the free options. Like, I would have expected the ability to put someone in armor and you can't really do that. The free options don't include anything that looks like chainmail or, or plate mail or anything like that. And ranged weapons, you've only got a bow that looks like it was somebody just broke a branch off a still living tree and tied some ropes to it, which, okay, if you're a druid or a ranger, fine, but it doesn't really fit if you're playing a ranged fighter or, mm -hmm. or a rogue or anything like that. It just, like, I, I don't want to say that it's scammy, but my initial impression when I went in there is, oh, Basically, if you actually want to create the character you want, you have to pay money. Sure. Other than that, it's just a tech demo. The character sheet functions, like you said, it's it's an online character sheet. It doesn't have anything better or worse than a number of character sheets out there. I mean, I don't use the online character sheets much anyway. But to me, the main draw of this is the pixel art. Mm. It is a very nice looking style, I feel. It is very nice pixel art as as pixel art goes, but if you aren't a fan of that style, personally I didn't see a lot to make this stand out. Yeah, I will say that the appeal here is in the pixel art style, absolutely. And of the various avatar builders that I tried, because like I said, I initially went looking for something that would allow me to build pixel art style characters like this anyway. That's kind of what drew me to this was the style and the, uh, certainly at the paid tier, the amount of bits of equipment and additional styles and everything like that that you can put onto them. Well, I just found an issue. <laughs> oh, do tell. I was leveling up the rogue catfolk that I just made and I got to level 3 and instead of automatically choosing thief because it's the only one only subclass that's on there it allowed me to go to next and now I am level 3 without a subclass <laughs> ah there we go well I will submit that as a bug on your behalf okay <laughs> well links to reroll can be found in our show notes but is there something that's an absolute must have at your tables have you found a cool app, book, or another item that you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. Now what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. This week in D&D News, just in time for spooky season, Wizards of the Coast have proven that necromancy is in fact a wizard school, as they're resurrecting Curse of Strahd. Though this time it's getting revamped. 
Seriously, wizards? Okay, back to the topic at hand. This edition contains the familiar adventure you know and love to hate, with a ton of added extras, such as a DM screen designed for use with your favorite Barovian castle crawler, a double-sided poster map with the dread domain of Barovia on one side and Castle Ravenloft on the other, a brand new 54-card foil-stamped Taraka deck for use in the adventure, plus the box to keep them in, and 12 postcards which you can use to invite your friends to the game. In addition, Wizards of the Coast have also split the module into three separate volumes, taking a cue from Beetle and Grimm's Platinum Editions. The 252-page monstrosity has been split into a 1-10 through 10 adventure, a Creatures of Horror booklet containing just the monsters, a Taraka deck booklet for reading the cards and marveling at the whims of fate, and all of it comes in an appropriate coffin-shaped box. But this isn't just a fancy reprint with some extra bits. In light of recent social shifts, wizards have taken the opportunity to rewrite certain problematic sections. The adventure still plays the same, and there's no new content in that vein, but descriptions of racial features and characters have been updated to not draw on incorrect and offensive cultural stereotypes. The revamped version also includes General Arata, given that Curse of Strahd was one of the earlier modules published in 5th edition's lifecycle. The first foray for wizards into what they're calling the boxed adventure products is available everywhere now, but as you might imagine those extra goodies come at an increase in cost, with Curse of Strahd revamped, retailing for a penny shy of $100. US Moving on, the latest issue of Dragon Plus, the official D&D digital magazine, is out now and available for download through the Dragon Plus mobile app, or can be read online at dnd.dragonmag.com. As well as the usual previews of things in the works, streaming highlights, fiction pieces, and the best of the DMs guild, this issue also features a DMless solo adventure set in Icewind Dale and a look at what Wizards is doing for Extra Life 2020. We also get a sneak peek of one of the 13 puzzles coming to us in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, so let's talk about that. Yeah, this puzzle. When I looked it over, I admire how it was built, but as I was reading through it, the only thing that I could really think is, wow, this is a really good puzzle. My players would just give up on it pretty much after the first minute of not being able to figure it out. So this puzzle, it's a... Basically, it's um, like a cryptography puzzle. It's like a cipher. So there is an encoded alphabet that the players can uncover that allows them to spell out a keyword that helps to solve the puzzle. So the puzzle setup is that there is a dwarven smith who has died and his soul has gone into a sword called the Soul Keeper. Uh, when the characters arrive, his body is on the floor, he's clearly been dead for a little while, and there is various weapons and artifacts strewn about this workshop. And then what your players are supposed to do is, through investigations, find a sketch in a desk drawer that tells them, roughly, that there are these uh, swords and different weapons that are around the room, when they look around the room and compare it to the sketches that are in the sketchbook, they will find that each of these weapons that is on the wall uh, that have been like mounted and you know they're like display pieces has a small plaque next to it and the plaque next to it says, um, for example, Adamantine Scimitar, Bronzewood Shortsword and that sort of stuff, which in the, in the sketches is referenced by a series of what looks like cuneiform but is supposed to be daggers that are in different positions to make up these letters. 
Once they then figure that out, what they're supposed to do is look at the altar that's in the room, realize it's in a shape of an anvil, uncover a birdcage where the parrot will squeak the name Moradin, and then they have to spell the word Moradin using the daggers that are strewn about the workshop by placing them on the altar in the positions that correspond to the letters that they have uncovered from solving the puzzle of the display weapons around the room. Once they've done that, the dwarf's soul will leave, the soul keeper sword, reanimate the body, puzzle is complete. All right, somebody at Wizards of the Coast spent way too much time in escape rooms. <laughs> yes, and that's what I mean, is that th this is ranked as difficulty medium, by the way. But like I said, when I was reading through this, the first thing that I thought of is one, this is a really great puzzle. I do genuinely enjoy these cryptography based ones where it's an encoded alphabet and you've got to try and figure out what symbols mean what letters and then figure out what the code word is. But the thing that really struck me about it is that there is nothing that really points to the fact that they even have to put a code word in somewhere, let alone that that is on an altar that needs to be spelled out of daggers. That is just kind of not really mentioned. It's not as if the part where it talks about the sketches that they find in the drawer says uh, that they need to spell it out on the altar. I guess that if you uncover the birdcage and the parrot starts saying the word Moradin, you'll figure out that that's the code word, but there's no obvious place where it tells the players through what they can discover where they put this code word in. Because let's just say they did it, but they decide to set the code word up on the floor in daggers, that's going to fail. Because at no point has the puzzle provided them a way to point to where the code needs to be entered. Yeah, also there's no... I feel like in order to make that connection, there'd need to be more backstory. Because I can easily see a party uncover the parrot, squawking Moradin, and just go, oh, this must have been, you know, the dwarf's parrot, and he was a follower of Moradin, and just sort of leave it at that. Yeah. Now, I will say, of course, there is that whole DM caveat of you can give hints to your players, you know, you are supposed to go off script, that's kind of how DMing works. They do provide a little bit of guidance on how to use hint checks, um, but they're basically saying, like, do uh, intelligence and wisdom skill checks, and then sort of give them hints as to what the letters are, but it never really actually says, you know, that this needs to be done on the altar. That is just kind of in the DM's notes. Nowhere has that ever been made visible to players. Yeah, that that concerns me about this, because to me, I think of puzzles a lot of the time like mystery novels, and I, I don't read mystery novels as a rule, but I know that a lot of people <laughs> who do prefer the type where if you are reading as a reader, you should be able to go back through the book and solve the mystery yourself given what's in there. There shouldn't be yeah. any clues or logical connections that are only revealed during the reveal scene at the end. And I feel like this particular puzzle, there are certain connective items like you mentioned that you either have to get it from the DM or you sort of have to metagame and say, okay, right. we're in a puzzle, there's an altar in the room, obviously the altar is going to be part of the puzzle because that's how these things work, which isn't 
necessarily logic that a character in game would use. It's definitely player playing a game recognizing tropes. I would set it up so that the altar already had daggers on it configured in one of the letters. Or, yeah, right. configured in one of the letters. And that would be a brilliant way for the puzzle to signal to the players, this is where you need to do this. But as written, that's not there. And I I realise that this might sound like I'm nitpicking over something stupid that a DM could very easily, like you just said, Ryu, do. But what I kind of worry about is that the way that these have been billed is that you should be able to pick up the book, quickly flick to a puzzle, and drop it in. And I could see that if I did this with this particular one, I would have run up against that very quick. And also I feel that for a puzzle, this would probably take my players too long to actually, and I feel that it would bog down the game too much. Now, this might just be my players. I don't know if you guys have different types of players who, you know, think that this is, uh, that this sort of thing would be right up their alley, but. Well, when I was reading, I mean, most of the groups I play with are much more on the vein of, oh, it's a puzzle, set it on fire. But, um, yeah, <laughs> the, but that's regardless of difficulty. It's like, you know, they could have, they could see a slide puzzle that's just three pieces and just go, nope, break it with a hammer. Um, but I think that puzzle that was outlined when I was reading through it, that could easily take up an entire session because there are a lot of moving parts to keep track of. You know, even if some, even if you've got a group that's into it, I feel like there's going to have to be at least two people taking notes while everybody else is doing everything, which that might be, you know, the, the type of fun that groups have with those puzzles. But I definitely don't think this is a quick, oh, you know, this will be a 10 minute diversion while we're traipsing through the dungeon. Oh yeah, this is this is easily a three hour diversion for my groups. <laughs> right. And given that that one says difficulty medium, I actually wonder what their difficulty hard is going to look like. But yes, so that aside, there was quite a lot of stuff in Dragon Mag this issue. What else did you guys like or not like, of course, in uh, this issue of Dragon Plus? I like the new shirts that they have for the Extra Life campaign. The regular one is, well, it's three kobolds in a trench coat. Right. And who wouldn't want that on a shirt? But also the one for the Lambert House, which is the uh, LGBTQ youth mm -hmm. one. The new design that they have for that one is stunning. And I, I immediately went and got myself one. <laughs> so in the previous editions of the Lambert House shirt have been the uh, just the rainbow ampersand, which is great. Rainbow ampersand is cool. But this one is a white dragon head breathing out rainbow fire with a red D&D ampersand on its chest. And it's on a black background, and it's kind of breathtaking. Actually, there's, there's some breath right there. You can see it. It's the big rainbow <laughs> bit. It is a very striking piece of art. I like that it's not very cartoony, which has been... It seems to have been the theme with a lot of merchandise that D&D has put out, particularly around Extra Life. And this is more... Mm -hmm. I don't know if realistic is the right term, but... 
it's definitely not got the cartoony look like three kobolds in a trench coat that has a very cartoony look and feel to it whereas this one yeah like you said it's not a realistic dragon per se but it is definitely a lot more serious art they had a article in there which was make your monsters scarier keeping with the spooky season theme um which i thought it was well written it doesn't it isn't like revelatory for people who've been DMing for a while or even people who've been crafting fiction, but it gives a basic primer in, hey, if you want your monsters to be more interesting than just being a bag of hit points that the characters are obviously supposed to get rid of, here are some ways that you can flesh out their backstory or tweak their behavior to make them a little more interesting and a little more menacing. I don't want to go over the details because it's a fairly surface level article, so I'd sort of spoil the whole thing. But it, uh, like I said, for an initial primer, um, if you are just completely bereft of ideas of how to make interesting evil characters, having a look at that article is a good, good start. There's also a fun little article called Dungeons and Doggies, which basically <laughs> tells you how to create your D&D character as a dog. Um, so, you know, Lennon can make that pug warlock he's always wanted. Mm, the only thing more <laughs> enticing for me to play than a Kender warlock. <laughs> Speaking of, though, we actually kind of might have a way to do that soon. But officially, officially... The previews of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything continue to roll in. In a recent episode of Dragon Talk, which is the official D&D podcast, host Greg Tito sat down with Jeremy Crawford for some sage advice on the upcoming sidekick system being re-released in Tasha's Cauldron. Well, okay, kind of re-released. See, although sidekicks made an appearance in the Essentials Kit, it differed a little from the Unearthed Arcana playtest. That's to be expected, of course, but the version coming in Tasha's is different again, though this time it more resembles the Unearthed Arcana version. So, what can we expect? We're glad you asked, hypothetical listener talking to a podcast. The sidekick rules still include applying a template to an NPC stat block, the templates being the sidekick classes of Warrior, Expert, and Spellcaster, which Jeremy says we can think of as three brand new classes for 5th edition that are simple, elegant, and flexible. The baseline rule is that you take a creature that's challenge rating one half or lower and add the sidekick class levels onto them, though if you choose the spellcaster then the creature that you pick has to be able to speak. Speaking of, if you do choose the spellcaster, you then get to choose between one of three different starting packs of spells. When the sidekick then joins your party, they should just match your current level, and as the sidekick levels up, the rules have been simplified, so sometimes they may only get a proficiency boost. But we also hear that you can multi-class a sidekick, though no details on how. Also, Jeremy says that these rules are perfect for creating unique NPCs that have more adventurer-like abilities without having to create full-blown character sheets for them. Perfect for that tavern owner who previously stolen princesses back from sleeping Barrow Kings, who burned down the entire town of Trayvon, who spent the night with Felorian and left with both their sanity and their life, who was expelled from the university at a younger age than most people are even allowed in, who treads paths by moonlight that others fear to speak of during the day, and who has talked to gods, loved women, and written songs that make the minstrels weep. You aren't thinking of anyone in particular, are you? I, I mean... Maybe, but honestly, I don't want to kick up a fuss, or a rothfuss, about book three. 
I'm glad you mentioned kicking up a fuss because the eagle-eared listeners may have noticed something. You can take a creature of challenge rating one half or lower and apply a sidekick class to it. Any creature. In fact, Jeremy says sidekicks don't have to be a person, and there are nine different sidekicks depicted in the book, including a wolf sidekick who's either winking or missing an eye. Okay, fine, these might make good substitute for a Beastmaster Ranger's companion, but Jeremy then goes on to offer additional uses for the sidekick system, including that sidekicks could be used as a, quote, zero-level, unquote, player character before your characters decide what class to make their main. And, given that Jeremy wants us to think of the Warrior, Expert, and Spellcaster as new 5th edition classes, we're encouraged to use the sidekick system if you want to play something non-traditional, saying that now you can do it using a sidekick class. You want to play as a zombie? Maybe play as a wolf? Go for it! You can play any creature CR 1 half or lower. And if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go take a long walk off a short beer now. <laughs> so tell us, Ostron, you know, don't hold back. What are your feelings on this? <sighs> Limiting the sidekicks to creatures that are challenge rating one half or lower would be great. If challenge rating had anything to do with the creature's <laughs> abilities whatsoever. <laughs> okay, so challenge rating, that's certainly one one issue here. Yeah. And I, I really have to stay there for a moment because I will grant that it's possible there are more restrictions on it. But if you just go with creatures of challenge rating one half or lower, there are a ridiculous number of things in the monster manual and all of the associated reference books that just start out giving some really crazy abilities. Like, for example, a fiendish giant spider is a CR one-half creature. By default, this creature is resistant to cold fire and lightning damage, immune to poison damage, can't be poisoned, has spider climb, and its basic attack includes a 2d6 poison constitution save every time it attacks, which is more stuff than you can apply to, I think, any playable race that exists in 5th edition right now. Yeah. And I found this... The other thing... Um, a Sturge is a C, it's a CR 1 8th creature, and it has the thing where it attaches to a target and then just keeps draining hit points off of whatever it's attached to. And the problem is, is all of these abilities are attached to creatures that have, in most cases, stats that balance it out. Like, a Sturge only has two hit points. Any hit at all is probably going to drop it. Um, but, you know, the Fiendish Giant Spider is something you're really only supposed to encounter in higher level areas, like the Underdark or maybe the 
nine health, not somewhere that someone's going to be at level one. But if this works the way I think it does, and you overwrite the basic statistics of the creature in terms of ability scores, armor class, and hit points with whatever is coming from the character build, that means you've now got a basic player character who's getting all of these things all at once. And I know, I know, the DM can say no, but honestly, I'm getting really sick of wizards coming out with stuff and saying, hey, you can do all of this, and if you don't like it, the DM can just tell the players no, which makes the DM the bad guy all the time. So what you're saying is that you don't want a party made up of level zero Barovian witches. Or abyssal chickens. I would have picked that one. Or diseased giant rats. Yeah, any of those. Like, I just, initially I just limited it to beasts, because I figured you know, you can make a decent argument that, okay, you're not allowed to pick fiends or dragons as you know, player character creatures, but even if you go with just beasts or humanoids at that CR level, there are a decent number of creatures where it's like, there are special abilities here that work great when they're an enemy with, you know, either no AC or no hit points, as I said, but when you stick them on a player character, it gets silly. Yeah, that's why I picked the Barovian Witch, because that is one where... um it comes with a load of spells as default and so if you made a barovian witch spellcaster again we don't know if the spells on there will it will say mechanically that they have to replace them or equally if you take that character the barovian witch and were to make them a warrior class then it may say as part of the warrior things if they know any spells then drop them we literally don't know until it comes out but what it sounds like on the surface though is that you can mix and match things like that otherwise the whole thing of want to play as a zombie well presumably you would want to do that and at least have the undead fortitude so it would imply that your skills get maintained right because otherwise it's just it's just fluff and there's no reason to make it a mechanic at all yeah and um have you guys considered an entire party of oblex characters <laughs> all right with that comforting thought <laughs> Yeah, the, the other thing is the note that you can multi-class with a sidekick class. From what I remember of the warrior class, it is very useful. And depending on how you want to build your character, in some ways it's actually better than the fighter. So from what I remember of when we covered it in the Unearthed Arcana version, which it may have changed when we get to Tasha's Cauldron of Everything... If you don't want any particular subclass of the fighter, the warrior actually gives you more of a option and almost a better way to build a fighting class um, because of the bonuses to attacks and feats and things like that that the basic warrior sidekick builds as opposed to the fighter. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of the warrior, expert, and spellcaster is they are basically, rather than you choosing the individual classes like um, fighter or barbarian or paladin, they just kind of roll them into warrior. So it has aspects of each of those classes. Same with expert, has 
rogue, but also ranger sort of merged in there as well. Right, which in some cases they are they are already multi-classed characters without going through the multi-classing. So depending on how you do it, I can just see situations where it's possible you might be able to cobble together a character that is even more efficient than trying to multi-class with the base classes. And at this point, it's almost an aside, but the ability to take the sidekick classes and apply them to NPC companions to the party has just, like, forget final nail in the coffin. The coffin is just set on fire as far as the Beastmaster Ranger at this point. Like, with this, they have totally eliminated any reason to take that subclass. I mean, I would say that if you combine everything that has ever been talked about about companions, then the Beastmaster Ranger is not the only one limited to a companion. Anybody can have a companion. Anybody can have a sidekick animal. Any class can. Obviously, the Beastmaster Ranger should have their beast in addition to any companion that anyone would get, if you see what I mean. But I do agree that in practice, what you now have is, well, your class has a pet, so you don't need a pet. But you, fighter, who doesn't have a pet, yeah, you can have that spellcasting puma. Sure, why not? Uh, okay, spellcasters have to have the ability to talk. Yeah. You can have that expert puma, why not? And that will immediately outclass both the ranger portion, if they have a fighter that is using bows, and the beastmaster portion with the beast sidekick. I mean, I can already think of three different ways that I would rule this at my tables. But again, that all goes back to what Ostron was saying about it's the DM's decision on whether to allow and how to allow this in the first place. So it becomes arguments with players, and that's just not a great thing to have at the table. Right. And I can see that, obviously, if you want to do a game where it's like, okay, this session is going to be a one-shot, and everybody's going to be playing a wooden donkey, then... Thankfully, we now have rules to make that dream a reality. But otherwise, if you're relying on players to create their own characters away from the table, you're going to have to absolutely specify, but not in that style if you do not want it to appear, because people just naturally will. It's going to be character creation rules, right? Yeah. And it, as I was saying, I just, I am all for mechanics that allow players to have more choices. And I like the idea of there being mechanics to do sort of off-the-wall things if people want to do that and they don't have to, you know, it's not on the DM to make those rules up themselves and hope that they're balanced correctly. My problem is it seems like lately, whenever Wizards comes out with rules where they are giving players more options, the approach has been... You can do anything unless your DM is a buzzkill, as opposed to <laughs> these are the basic constrained ways to implement this system. And if your DM allows it, these are the ways it can be expanded to allow extra things. It's which, as somebody who DMs more than he plays... It's the difference between the DM having to rein everybody in 
when they've been told anything goes, as opposed to the rules saying you have to do it this way, and then the DM being, but I'm going to let you do more. Now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to find out what it takes to rule in hell. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Lennon? Darn it. <laughs> yes? Well, for one, you failed your stealth roll. For another, why are you heading toward the workshop with a blackjack? I... I need to use Rostro and Ostron's in the workshop. Okay, there are so many things wrong with what you're doing. I just can't even... But why do you need to use that thing? Well, I'm not exactly sure how to summon Asmodeus, and I was kind of hoping Rostron would be able to help. Ostron! What? Oh, I thought you were in the workshop. No, why were you yelling? Can you explain to me why Lennon has decided he needs to summon Asmodeus? No. Whenever he's doing something odd, I assume it's a British thing. Oh, hang on, hang on. You're not putting this off on me. No, no, no. You were the one who gave me the research assignment. I said I needed a few notes on Asmodeus. I assumed you were going to ask Libby or something. What, you were going to get it from the source? Well, it's the quickest way, isn't it? All right. Why don't we see what you've got and what Ostron's already gathered, and then we'll see if we need to do more research or not. People who haven't studied the lore of D&D usually assume Asmodeus is basically analogous with the Judeo-Christian devil, and in broad strokes, they aren't completely wrong. The very, very short version of his, and in almost all cases, Asmodeus is given a masculine gender and portrayal, his history is that he's in charge of the Nine Hells, and all the devils of any rank report to him, and he just wants to gather as many mortal souls as possible and win the Blood War. But if you dig a little deeper, there are some nuances that emerge. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of contradictions. Most of the lore that now exists about Asmodeus was published during D&D's second edition. Other than fourth edition, all the lore about Asmodeus and the Nine Hells have been reprints or summaries of info that's been published back then. Fourth edition took the lore in a different direction, but all of that has been retconned as of Mordenkainen's Tomb of Foes, so we're just gonna not cover it here. One thing that most sources agree on is Asmodeus's physical being. Apparently the true form of Asmodeus is a several hundred mile long scaled serpent suffering from multiple bleeding wounds. This form exists in a pit on Nessus, the lowest layer of the Nine Hells. This form doesn't work for conducting normal business, so when most beings encounter Asmodeus, it is in the form of one of his avatars. Those avatars generally appear as a red-skinned humanoid 13 feet or approximately 4 meters tall with glowing red eyes, horns, and a well-trimmed beard, generally dressed in very expensive clothes colored red or black. In general, beings find him attractive, charming, and very persuasive as long as he is making an effort to behave that way. One interesting misnomer that tends to remain constant in the lore is while Asmodeus is the leader of the Nine Hells and is classified as a fiend, he is not actually a devil himself. In reality, he is more often considered a deity, albeit one with a bit of a different job profile. Because of that, fighting him is a dubious proposition at best. Usually, Asmodeus has access to a large number of known spells, particularly those themed around fire, and more spell slots or casting ability than mortals have access to. In some cases, he is able to cast any known spell given the right circumstances. 
In addition to the spellcasting, Asmodeus is generally immune to most damage, trying to use mental abilities on him is pointless, and he is able to instill fear or domination on most beings without undue effort. The other thing primarily involved in combat is his ruby rod, which appears in form to be a large ruby shaped as a scepter. To attack, the rod can shoot beams of acid, electricity, or a cone of cold at range, or as Modius can simply hit someone with it, which, in addition to doing physical damage, immediately casts an inflict wound spell on the target if it hits. Defensively, the rod can project an aura which renders people unwilling to attack Asmodeus, it can create a wall of force on command, and it can project a field that acts as both an anti-magic field and a cleansing aura, restoring health and curing diseases. All of Asmodeus' avatars come with the rod for reasons we'll explain in a moment. While most of the information about Asmodeus' form and behavior are consistent, his origins are not. There are three conflicting stories in lore, and each explains some aspect of Asmodeus. By the way, if any scholars of mythology and religion recognize some familiar themes in these stories, well, you're right. But so far none of the gods involved have sued for copyright infringement, so… The first story relates to his true form, the giant serpent. This origin posits that Asmodeus was one of two strongest lawful deities of creation, then called Ariman. He and the other deity, Jazirian, wanted to impose order on the multiverse, so they bit each other's tails and thus formed the ring that would define the Great Wheel. However, the gods disagreed on where the center of the ring should be. Jazirian wanted Celestia, Ariman wanted Bator. They eventually bit through each other's tails, and Ariman had no wings, so he fell, forming the crater his body now sits in and inflicting the multiple wounds he suffers from. The Asmodeus name just happened at some point. Story number two is the one Asmodeus and his devils more often tell when asked, possibly because it portrays Asmodeus and his followers in a more positive light. In this version of the story, the demons were constantly fighting the gods, but the gods wearied of the fighting and so created angels to do it for them. Asmodeus was, of course, the best at his job, but he and his lieutenants had somewhat gone native in their efforts to combat the demons and got annoyed, but Asmodeus counter-argued that they'd followed the intent of their orders. The gods were unable to come up with an effective legal counterargument. The story recycles that theme a lot, with the gods generally falling prey to Asmodeus' legal interpretations around punishment of mortals, using souls for energy and magic, until eventually the gods got fed up with him and threw him out of Celestia, literally again resulting in the falling and the pit and the wounds that don't heal. Story number three is one of the less popular ones, and it relates to the magical ruby rod. In this version, Asmodeus is a powerful being in service to an unnamed god in the abyss, simply called He Who Was. This god was apparently the ultimate micromanager, and Asmodeus rebelled and killed him. In the process, he grabbed one of the shards of evil the god guarded at the center of the abyss, and used it to create the rod of evil, then eventually just set up the Nine Hells thing. Most people think that while all of the above happened, since the god in question did exist, is now dead, and the ruby rod was definitely formed from a shard of evil, it isn't Asmodeus' origin story. Asmodeus's motivations and ultimate goals are also something most people misinterpret. The first misconception is Asmodeus just wants to take over everything because power, and he wants all the souls from everyone because more power. In reality, he wants to take over because he honestly believes he would do a better job at controlling and running the multiverse than the beings currently in charge. Obviously, there's some differences of opinion on that. 
The second thing is the souls bit. Interestingly, Asmodeus is not interested in acquiring a vast amount of souls or worshippers. His power and abilities don't increase based on the number of adherents he has because of his unique status. But he's also not a devil, so he doesn't need to use souls for energy since he himself is a divine being. However, he still has all those wounds from apparently plummeting through Bator. In order to cure those, he needs souls of avowed atheists, and in a world where gods grant their followers obvious divine powers and occasionally show up to say hi, those are hard to find. It's rumored that's why some cults of Asmodeus seemingly fail on their own. Asmodeus allows it to happen in an effort to get some of the followers to swear off religion completely. Apart from that, Asmodeus is a connoisseur. He only really pursues souls belonging to angels, massively powerful mortals, or other such rare beings, and usually his end goal is to make them a lieutenant or some sort of active agent rather than simply trapping them down in the hells. His successes to date include Tiamat, although that's debated, an Archon named Triel who is now known as Beelzebul, and Zeriel. The other misconception is that he's desperately focused on the blood war to protect existence from the demons and ensure the devils don't get overrun. In reality, that's propaganda, so Asmodeus can argue that he's being altruistic. Asmodeus barely pays the conflict any attention, and when he does, it's for one reason. The rest of the shards of evil at the centre of the abyss. Rumour has it that if Asmodeus gains control of them, he also gains dominion over all the demons, so obviously he doesn't want to eliminate what he sees as his future reinforcements. It could also explain why the side that has an actual god on it hasn't already won, especially because if you believe one of his origin stories, he's won the exact same war in the past. As for what he does or has done, there are a large number of conflicting stories and examples, but a few major incidents are generally agreed upon. One of the earlier ones has been made into a play in the material plane called The Trial of Asmodeus. This follows along the same theme as Asmodeus's Servant of the Gods origin story, in which the angels accused Asmodeus of wrongdoing and got the chief modron, Primus, a perfectly neutral being, to mediate. Asmodeus presented his case, stating everything he'd done was within the letter of the agreements. The angels en masse tried to shout their examples and objections until Zeriel, who was still an angel at this point, tried to punch her way to the front and started a brawl. Primus lost his patience with the angels, declared no wrongdoing, but decreed that Asmodeus would always carry the ruby rod to serve as a symbol of that decision. The other major event that all the devils cite as evidence of Asmodeus's brilliance as a manipulator is known as the Reckoning of Hell. It started when two separate alliances of archdevils started working to overthrow Asmodeus. The first was led by Beelzebul, who had Belial, Moloch, and Zeriel on his side. The other was headed by Mephistopheles, who had Mammon, Despater, and Geryon with him. All of them wanted to overthrow Asmodeus, but disagreed about who should be in charge, so they went to war with each other. Asmodeus just sat back in the lowest level of hell until he told Geryon, who was actually still loyal, to move. See, he'd made sure the pit fiends in all of the armies were still loyal to Asmodeus, so on the signal, they all rose up and basically ruined the armies of all sides. So Asmodeus put down two rebellions simultaneously and really didn't have to do anything for himself. Prior to the Reckoning, Asmodeus had a consort named Bensosia, which is where his daughter Glacia came from. 
However, when Levistus tried to get Bensosia to turn on Asmodeus, she rebuffed him hard, and he killed her in a rage, which led to his imprisonment in the ice in Stygia. It was only after the reckoning, when Asmodeus decided Geryon needed to go for some reason, that Levistus was returned to consciousness, though he's still stuck in the glacier. As you've probably gathered by now, Asmodeus seems to make an effort to enhance his own reputation as someone who can maintain control and outsmart anyone he needs to. At this point, most people in the know assume there are multiple layers to everything he does. For example, the demon lord Gratzt used to be an archdevil, but apparently switched sides after Asmodeus sent him into the abyss on a mission. But did he actually switch sides, or does Asmodeus have an inside man in the abyss now, closer to his goal of the evil shards? He's also credited with freeing the Dwergar from Mind Flayer control in exchange for their pact to always fight the forces of Lolth, and of course he made the Tieflings what they are today. But were those just the results of simple pacts, or is there a larger game he's playing? And what exactly is his deal with Tiamat? These are things that remain unknown, at least officially, and that's something that has to be considered at a player and DM level. Much of the information presented here about Asmodeus has been confirmed in lore, but from characters' perspectives in-game it would either be a myth or rumour unless they were actually infernal scholars. For example, in lore, anyone other than an archdevil who has seen Asmodeus' true form has died within 24 hours. Not because of some curse or mystic spell, he just sends a whole lot of devils to go kill them. So no one other than an archdevil would actually be able to ever confirm that. The reason Levistus is locked in ice is also officially a mystery. So if Asmodeus is a main feature in a game, be sure to recognise which information is stuff you know and what are things that your characters would be aware of. And right, yeah, no, I, I get it, but I honestly just can't deal with any more uncertainty in my life right now, so I'm going to have to go through with the summoning. So I'm just going to take my club and... Hey, how, how did you get that from me? You've heard of sleight of hand, right? Actually, given your performance earlier, you probably haven't. Oh, and take it from me, Asmodeus won't answer questions, no matter how fancy your hat. But we still have to, so let's get over to the scrying pool. What news from the north? Join us of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Two weeks ago, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, have you picked up the early access Baldur's Gate 3? What's your impression of the game? What are your thoughts on the rule changes that I mentioned? Do you think they're enhancements to the game that should have been included in tabletop from the start, or do they only work in context of a video game to keep track of the extras? Mimics, where are they? Can you tell? Are you sure? Mimics, where are they? Can you tell? Are you sure? Can you even tell which community question is the mimic? Carcer, mimic enthusiast on Discord says, I've not picked up BG3 yet because I prefer to play the finished article, though I do appreciate everything that's been said about it. I'll probably pick it up late beta. Most of those rule changes are fantastic, and I may introduce some of them. I'm not certain they should have been in the game from the word go, because our favorite TTRPG is a fluid, messy, organic game with lots of incremental changes, much like the evolution of a creature, such as, for example, a mimic. Speaking of such things, as you know, I have an affinity with these creatures, however I won't bore you with a diatribe of how any fun DM will use them all over the place and in interesting ways. I will say though that used properly, mimics can be a very effective tool to create a really messed up adventure. Happy hunting! And Gath member on Discord says, I want to get BG3 but I think I'm going to wait for a bit. Larian games tend to be a bit buggy on release and I want to be able to see how all the different classes are implemented beyond just the cleric. Shock. Horror. Regarding the rule changes, I really like the extra attack option for each weapon and I might add that to my home games, as it adds very little additional complexity but allows for some differentiation between the weapons that isn't just visual flavour. 
Pretentious Latin name on Discord says, I bought BG3 as soon as it became available, and my five-year-old rig is pretty much unable to do a thing with it. I'll have to wait until I upgrade in order to get a feel for it, but I've heard good things about the Ranger updates. Then the Minotaur on Discord says, Not played BG3, but it wouldn't surprise me if the enhanced weapon abilities is to mitigate how boring it can be playing low-level characters. The limited abilities of a first-level character are great for learning the fundamentals like attack rolls, AC, damage rolls, etc., but since that's handled by the computer, basic attacks need something extra to keep the player's attention. Would it be enough to make experienced tabletop players stay engaged at low levels? Results would probably vary. I think there's a case for an experienced DM letting low-level monsters use the same abilities, just to keep things exciting. And Tomasanese on Instagram says, I was going to sign up for the Early Access Baldur's Gate 3 until I saw the price tag of $60. Yeah, um, so on that one, that's because they're actually charging the retail price for the game now, and they have said that it won't adjust. Um, a lot of games do have a cheaper Early Access phase, but not Baldur's Gate 3. That's probably stipulated in the agreement with wizards somewhere i also think it's because a lot of early access games usually have to lower the price as an incentive but i think Baldur's gate 3 from larian studios like people don't need incentive to buy that yeah there's sort of a a double whammy of name recognition there mm. so carson mentioned ostron that the favorite ttrpg is a fluid messy organic game with lots of incremental changes um do you think that's a fair way to describe the psychic system? Uh, yeah. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't mind extra options and more things to do. I just, I just hate the fact that it's always up to the DMs to rein it in. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. But then you also have DMs who like to throw mimics everywhere. So. Well, yeah, but that's just. DMs being evil, which is a staple of the game, and you can't really do anything about that. Yeah, that's the case of the DM needing to be reined in. I am a little disappointed, though, that uh, Pretentious Latin Name's five-year-old rig won't really run it, because my rig is a lot older than that. <laughs> I mean, the graphics card's been updated on it, but yeah... I guess I'm going to need a new PC soon then as well. Although having said that, Larian did get Divinity Original Sin 2 running on the Switch. So I, I'm sure they will be able to optimize it. I hope they'll be able to optimize it. And in general feedback, Rebel on Discord snuck up on Lennon and whispered, Good show. Thanks. Uh, sorry, did you guys hear something? <laughs> yeah, Haven't heard from Rebel again this week, so. Mm. Hold on. Lennon failed his perception check again, guys. Yeah, skill checks are not his thing tonight. It's hard to fail your perception check when you don't even have any. <laughs> and that brings us to this week's community questions. So, what do you think of the revamped Curse of Strahd? Are the additions and bonus items worth the new price tag, or is it just window dressing on a revision that should have really been done anyway? Did you see anything in Dragon Plus that caught your eye? Are you going to be shirt buddies with Ryu? Sidekicks. Yeah. Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 139th entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 140th entry on November 4th, but before we go, we want to know. For you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone, at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. 
Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy. And be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 a month and give you access to raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server, and our second show Heroes Rise Disnet Whispers, a freeform roundtable discussion of the wider topics in D&D. To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Menvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and adventurers league correspondent, Indigo Spectre, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwen, and Demosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Mark Onsman, Brew Hammer, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vince Vept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincevept.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. We should probably stop. I mean, oh. people have said that, but yes. This issue also features a DM-less solar, ad- solar adventure. Yes, you threw your DM into the sun, play by yourself. <laughs> That's called a segue. That was quite the carrot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I-, I was hoping you were going to pick it up and run with it, but... Oh, I thought you were. <laughs> no, he meant he wanted you to start reading the next segment. Fine. <laughs> I always forget with Rio, it's carrots don't work, it's chilies. Chilies are what we need to use. Yeah. Which it may have changed by the time it gets to, ca- to Kasha's Taldron of Everything, is what I was about to say. Wow, okay. I'm developing dyslexia as the show goes on. It's pronounced Mystic Odysseys? Yeah, I... D- <laughs> <laughs> I felt Ostron was quite eloquent enough. That's certainly a word. <laughs> I'm, right. yep, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm good. Cool. Are you? Are you? Are you? I'm. I'm too ranted out to continue on war. <laughs> Fourth edition took the law. A blue That is what, not what, what I language? wrote, and I don't actually know how I would write that. I was about to say, what language did you say that in? Fourth edition. Is that flump. It is. Although, isn't that just like? Flump? Apparently the true form of a apparently the true form of Asmodeus is 
Apparently, the true form of as ah, true form of asmodee. <laughs> this form is obviously inconvenient for conducting normal vi- This form is obviously inconvenient. <sighs> I am so sorry, Brenwin. I am. I will just give up. This form well, is we- obvious. Sorry. I was going to say we do still need to finish the segment. Yeah, I so. know. I know. <sighs> this form is obviously inconsistent. this form is obviously inconvenient no 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 this form right we took a week off i know i know i know we forgive you one interesting misnomer that tends to remain constant in the law is that while asmodeus is it i'm just going to sell my soul to asmodeus right now this might help me get through this (laughs) oh my gosh okay this origin post this origin posits that Asmodeus. Nah. This origin posits that Asmodeus was. T- Dang it! <laughs> Helps if you unmute yourself before you start talking. <laughs> well, only if you want us to have a clue what's going on, or Branwen or the listeners. But yeah. Do you think their enhancement? <laughs> I'm gonna start that whole that whole <laughs> CQ again. You just do it. Yep. A super secret lounge on our patron Discord. So <laughs> nope. Close, but not quite. Not quite. 